little survey as we begin. Um, how many of you have ever taken a selfie? Come on, hands in the air. How many? Really? There must be some more than that. Hands in the air. You know, we're, we're, yeah, yeah, there's even some other folks who are now admitting to have occasionally taken a selfie. Um, I, um, we, we live in this funny culture where, you know, it, it hasn't actually happened unless you've taken a selfie. And you probably then have to post it somewhere on social media and you have to have your own special hashtag and be the first person to have ever used that so the tags get longer and longer and longer. I wonder if you might indulge me. Would it be okay if I just took a selfie with you today? Because otherwise today won't have happened. It's all right. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, and we have said that we're going to be taking photographs at all sorts of events. So uh, camera white right around. Here we go. So you have to smile. You're in the background, but it's, you know, smile. Fantastic. Great. Uh, happy days. Um, uh, there's, all sorts, there's all sorts of ways you can get that into a sermon. It's amazing. Um, we have become this weird generation where it's all about the selfie. I mean, it used to be that photography, you would take pictures of other people. I, my mum has got album upon album upon album of photographs with other people in them. And occasionally we have to physically turn the camera around and take a few of mum just so that we know that she was actually part of our childhood. When I grew up, uh, I grew up in a Christian household and I, I remember thinking, what is it about the Christian faith that is different? What is it? And I had to look at all the other world religions and I had to look at the way that the society was functioning. And I was looking for, what is it about the Christian faith that is different? What marks us out? Over this last few weeks, over this term, we've been thinking about the early church in the book of Acts just after the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and looking at some of the things they did, how that community grew and some of the things that they did And so we come to today and we're looking at worship and the early church going into the temple courts to worship, meeting in each other's homes to worship. But in order to try and get across what I want to say, I need to start uh, quite a bit further back, hence um, quite a lot of readings from Samuel. Um, so I'm going to try and explain them. And you, you know, this has got a little bit of a disclaimer uh, in that I first heard this set of passages preached on um, by a man called Jack Hayford. Anyone heard of Jack Hayford? Majesty, that song. You know, he was the guy, he was the guy that wrote that. I mean, if you were a Christian in the, you know, long time ago, then you sang his songs. Okay. And he preached on this passage. It was part of a box set of teaching. I got it on a cassette. You remember those? I'm old. Uh, It was a box set of, I think, 24 cassettes, all on the subject of worship. And this one was just on this passage. So we're gonna, we're gonna go right back and we're gonna start with the Ark of the Covenant. In order to, understand the passage, we have to go back a bit further, right to the beginning of Samuel. I, I was thinking this morning as I was, as I was looking afresh at the Ark of the Covenant, and, um, uh, and it struck me that actually we've got a wonderful illustration of the size of the Ark of the Covenant in this building. I don't know whether you've ever spotted it. 
but this communion table, the Ark of the Covenant was about two centimeters longer. Ish. I mean, it was in cubits rather than centimeters. So, And it was a little bit wider and it was roughly the same height. Had little eyelets here at each corner. Pole would go through so that you could carry it. And on the top was the the mercy seat, or the lid, the mercy seat, covered in gold, two cherubim on either side, angelic beings in worship. And in the middle, the mercy seat. The mercy seat where once a year they would come and scatter it with the blood of a sacrificed animal to pay for the sin of the whole of the community. That was the Ark of the Covenant. So in order to understand the the story, we're going back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. You can please go and look all these up and read the story through so that you can uh, check what I've said. Um, In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4, the Philistines, that's the opposing army, they capture the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was representative of the presence of God. The mercy of God with sacrifices each year. The contents which had uh, copies of the commandments in them. The presence of God with the people. And so the ark has been captured by the Philistines. And they think, well, what should we do with the ark of the covenant? What should we do? So they take him to one of their most sacred places. They take him to the temple of the God of Dagon. They think, well, he'll be the ark of the covenant. You know, this kind of, this war machine, if you like. We'll place it in there. And they get up the following morning. And Dagon, their God has fallen prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they put Dagon up. I don't know why he needed help getting up. Maybe he couldn't do it by himself. But anyway, they come back in the following day and Dagon has fallen down again, prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a really interesting story. Except this time, his head falls off and he loses his his hands as well. And then all the people in the Philistine camp start to get unwell. And so they think, well, we, you know, we can't have him in our temple. We've got to have this ark going somewhere else. So they move him off, move the ark off to another city. And the people in that city get ill too. And they panic. They're really unsettled. Well, it's not long. In fact, it's just seven months. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, they agree that they cannot keep the ark of the covenant amongst them. That they shouldn't have taken it in the first place. And what they need to do is send it back to the people of Israel. And they need to make a peace offering as well. So, quite rightly, you know, they, they got covered in tumors and, and there were rats all over the place. So they, they thought for some reason, well, what we'll do is we'll send back gold rats and gold tumors with the Ark of the Covenant back to the people of God. And maybe that will, that will kind of calm everything down. I don't, I don't know anything about that. Um, but that's what they do. And what they do is they make a cart to put the Ark of the Covenant on. And they get two cows to pull the Ark of the Covenant. They don't want to be anywhere near it anymore. And they send it over the battle line from their territory to the territory of Israel. It comes to the village of Beth Shemesh. When the villagers see it, 
They break up the calm. They sacrifice the cattle and they worship and they celebrate. The ark has returned. The presence of our holy God is here amongst us again. But that day, some of them also chose to lift the lid and peek inside to see what God was really like. And on that day, 70 of them died. I'm not going to try and unpack the, that set of deaths and the other set of deaths that I'm just about to talk about, but their response is this in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Who can stand? And so the ark is taken to another village, to the house of Abinadab. And it stays there for 20 years. In the intervening time, what happens is the people request a king. They request so that a king so that they can be like everybody else. And Saul gets appointed as king. But actually, one of his first acts is to go against Samuel and, and take the role of Samuel rather than to be king. It's not long before he goes his own way. And the Lord rejects him as king. And Samuel comes and finds him in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And says, the Lord has rejected you. And instead he's going to appoint a king over Israel, a man after his own heart. So David gets appointed as king. And he hears about the Ark of the Covenant. He hears that it's at Abinadab's house. He hears that that if the ark comes back, everything will be different because the presence of God will be with King David. And so he goes with his men. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 6 now. He goes with his men and they take the ark and they put the ark on a cart. And the cart is towed by cattle. And as they are towing the cart back to the city of Jerusalem, the oxen stumble. And it looks like the Ark of the Covenant might fall off the cart. And one of Abinadab's sons, Uzziah, puts out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant. And as he touches it, the Lord strikes him down dead. It's a really strange story. Understandably, David is angry, confused. What's going on? I thought we were bringing the presence of God back to the holy city. But instead, this has happened. So the ark, instead of coming back to Jerusalem, goes to the house of Obed-Edom. This has all got a point, by the way. The, house go, the, car, the Ark of the Covenant goes to the house of Obed-Edom and David then hears three months later that Obed-Edom's house has been blessed. That everything is going well for him. So it's definitely time to get the Ark of the Covenant back. But this time, this time David will do it right. You see, the only reason the Ark of the Covenant was on a cart was because the Philistines didn't want to touch it. And quite rightly, the, the, the cart was broken up for worship. 
David's like, when they transported the... How did the ark get here? On a cart. Okay, great. So we'll put it on a cart. No, you're never supposed to put it on a cart. See, God is not a trophy that you can win at war for your, your bidding and your business. He said he wanted to be carried in a particular way with poles either side and priests at each end carrying his presence heavily carrying his presence before them and so this time this time they do it right this time they carry the ark of the covenant on poles but they do better than that they walk six steps and then they have a worship service They walk six steps and they have a sacrifice and they worship God and David dances before the Lord. It says he's in a linen ephod. If you go back and read Exodus, you'll discover the ephod that the priests were supposed to wear was eloquently decorated. This is not, he's basically in his underwear, dancing before the Lord. They go six steps and have another sacrifice. They're going to have to have started real early. This is going to take all day. And as they go down the road, each place, the fires of the previous sacrifice are still burning. And David is dancing before the Lord in joy and participation and worship to the King of Kings, the Holy God of Israel. When they get to the city of David with David dancing all the way and every six steps worship being made. When they get to the city of David, to the city of Jerusalem, they give out bread to everyone. The presence of God is here. The bread of the presence. Every single person will get a piece because God is here. Are you picking up any echoes yet of the New Testament? As we stand on a table, like stand near a table like this, and we break bread in the mercy seat, and everyone gets a piece. God is here. Bread is given out. But then when he gets there, His wife criticizes him. Why have you done this? Why have you danced naked? Why have you humiliated yourself before all of the people? What are you doing? Don't you understand? It doesn't actually say this, but this is my imaginings of it. What? You're a king! Come on, be king! And David's response is, I will become even more undignified than this. I will become even more undignified than this. So, that was quite a long bit of background. I hope that you go back and you read it, and that you wrestle with it and you make sense for it yourself. Let me try and make sense of some of it. You see, we are not Old Testament people, we are New Testament people. The promises that David was exploring and discovering have been fulfilled 
and we are New Testament people. The sacrifice has been made once for all. The blood that was poured out every year on the mercy seat has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross once for all. So that our sin is gone, forgiven, done. In Matthew 28, at the end of that gospel, just before the Great Commission, the disciples worship Jesus. If at any point they had got the wrong message, that they'd misunderstood who he was, he could have said, Do you know, oh, sorry lads, you've taken this a little bit too far. Look, I'm just a messenger, you shouldn't really be worshipping me. He accepts their worship. They worship Jesus, the King of Kings. And he responds with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. They worship Jesus. Peter, when he stands up and explains the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost... He stands up and he says in Acts chapter 2 verse 36 that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He's Messiah because he completes all of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of it. You know, I had a conversation with someone earlier on during the week and they were saying, yeah, but you know, there are all these different ways to God. I'm waiting for conversation number two so I can just, you know, it wasn't the right time. I was just listening. You know, there aren't all these other ways to God. There is one way, and his name is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he says of himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not another way. That's what Peter stands up and declares, that he is your Messiah, the promised one, and he's Lord. And the people gathered in Acts to praise God to praise Jesus. And the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. That's for next week. There's this picture in the New Testament of a community gathered where Jesus Christ is Lord. Where Jesus Christ is worshipped. And then Paul comes and first of all he's trying to tear the church apart. He's trying to round up all the Christians and kill them off. He's trying to end the people who are following the way. And instead, on the way to do that, he meets Jesus in person. And he says to him, Lord. He finally meets Jesus and he calls him Lord. Later on, he goes on to write in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So church, what will mark us out? What will make us any different than any other amazing organization across Bath and across England? What will mark us out? You know, maybe your answer to the question is, is is from the words of Jesus, that we are to love one another. That will mark us out. And indeed it will. And yes, we should love one another. Because as we love one another, they will know that we're his disciples. 
Maybe, maybe your answer is, is what will mark us out is the way that we take care of the poor. The way that we engage with injustices around the world. And absolutely we should be doing that. This church should reflect everyone who lives in Weston. What we need here is more of the people of Weston in this building. More of the people of Weston part of this community from every sphere of life. And we need to be engaging in connecting with others, those who are like us and those who are not. And we need to be addressing the injustices around the world. But you know, that's not the thing that marks us out. Anybody can do that. The thing that marks us out is this one simple truth. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That's that's our defining characteristic. That's what makes Christianity it. Sorry, it's not a cleverer word. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That we have chosen in response to Him. That we've chosen to let go of everything and follow Him. That we're the kind of people that declare that He's Lord and choose to worship Him. And folks, do you know, I'm really not fussed what your worship style is. You know, one of the things that we've intentionally set up over this year is three different kind of styles of worship. And you need to hear it from me. It's not that one is better than the other. At all. What's important is that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, and for some people, starting the day more quietly and a little bit more structured, that's what helps them. For others, singing the same thing again and again and again and again. Some of you hate that. It is good for you. You know, for others, that's, that's, that's how you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's important is that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't matter what the style is. You know, last week, last week we had um, one of Fiona Day's kids, Max, I think, who, who, who wasn't engaging with the service because, you know, he finds, he finds, he finds all this tough. Frankly, this is odd for him. This is hard. But he was at the back. He was making Lego crosses out of Brio. And he came and found Fiona and me afterwards and he, and he wanted the crosses to be on the table. What a joy it was to explain to the Tuesday congregation some of our most faithful prayers, some of them have been worshipping here for over 50 years, what those little crosses meant. And they were delighted to have them on the communion table for our communion service. It doesn't matter how you worship. It doesn't matter whether you like the liturgy or, or whether you like to sing the songs over and over and again. It doesn't matter whether, whether when you experience the Holy Spirit you're kind of just peacefully comforted by His presence or whether you land on the floor and quake. But He's here. That's my question to, the, to us as a church family, to the church in Bath. What will mark us out? What will mark us out 
is that Jesus Christ is Lord. All the other stuff, all the other stuff is things that we do in response to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so my question to you this morning is, is how far will you go before you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord? And I think the answer from the passage is no more than about six steps. Seems like a good measure. How far will you go before you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, before you worship and praise Him, before you give yourself completely and wholly back to Him? I think the answer is six steps. You know, you might say, you might say to me, but Mark, you, you don't know what I struggle with. You know, this is so difficult. This is what I'm wrestling with is so hard. Whatever's going on, no more than six steps before you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you've just paid off your mortgage, that death knell, uh, that's what it is, you know, it's a deed of death, okay? If you just managed to pay it off and we celebrate with you, how far till Jesus Christ is Lord? If you're concerned that your investments for your retirement are not going to get you through, how far before you go, Jesus Christ is Lord? And lift up his name and praise him and worship him. If you've just had a diagnosis, which means the time frame for your life goes from something that's out of you to something that's suddenly in view. How far will you travel before you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord? If you feel utterly blessed and you're delighted with your family and all your kids are delightful and amazing and they all got in, some of them got into Oxford and some of them got into Cambridge and they are all superheroes and they're going to study for PhDs and get you an enormous amount of money and care for you in your old age and we celebrate with you how far before you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. If your kids are wayward and you weep when they go out of the door, fearful of what they might do. How far, how many steps will you go before you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord? Before you worship Him. When we declare that He is Lord, when we allow Him to be King and we come to the cross again and again. We have to come with everything. But we can't take anything beyond that point. To, hum, to come to Him means leaving at the cross all of your successes and all of your failures. To come to the cross is to leave all of your sin to leave all of the defining labels, the places where you've identified yourself and said, this is me or culture has done that for you. You have to leave every single one of those labels at the cross. None of them survive the cross. And what you meet on the other side is him saying, welcome, son, daughter. Welcome in.
I pray that we will become a community that is not living for ourselves, but is living for him. I think this is the heart of worship, whatever the style of the song is, is that here we are, given over to him, the King of Kings, saying, Jesus, you are Lord. How far will you travel? How far will you travel before you break out into a song? Before you give him worship and praise? For David, it was six steps with a sacrifice at each side of the road all the way back home. Maybe for some of you, you just need it to be practical. My suggestion is, is, is that you don't get out of bed until Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah? You don't boil the kettle until Jesus Christ is Lord. That you don't eat a meal without saying thank you. That as you grieve and you're heartbroken, that you hold those things, but you also hold the other hand high and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not about attending a service. It's not about an hour on a Sunday. It's about that moment at five o'clock when you look at your desk and you haven't completed the day's work and you'd much rather go home, but you know there's overtime to do. In that moment, whether you choose to stay at work or go home, is Jesus Christ Lord? I pray that as a community that we take no more than six steps. You know, one of the things I've loved about being here is that, is that all the meetings start with prayer. That the rock project is steeped in prayer. Everywhere I go, I bump into these praying folks, declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'd love it to be what we're known for. I think it's time to worship. Will you stand with me? Folks, we are going to worship in song. Because that's kind of what we do when we get together. But you know, this is, a, this is a picture of the rest of our lives. This is a picture of whatever tomorrow morning holds for you. So as we together declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and worship Him, giving Him all of our heart. Let's do so asking that we'd also do that on Monday and Tuesday in the good times and the bad times.